0: 2985, or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Uh, Advent is winding down. Don't blink or you'll miss week four. It's about 24 hours long. Um, (laughs) But uh, we're here on Friday before Christmas in 2024, and uh, we're happy for you to be part of the program today. Colin Donovan is... Not ducking out early for the holiday. Colin is here till the last moment, taking your phone calls on Open Line Friday. So pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is line at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener, your celebrity call screener, is Mr. Tom Price, our director of programming and production um call tom and talk to tom you'll be entertained i think (laughs) tom i don't know when the last time Tom screen phone calls was so this could be an adventure for you so pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986 jeff burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on youtube or facebook live you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you?
2: I'm doing good and looking forward to the weekend and the week off, actually. So happy to see the octave coming. Beautiful. So
1: we've got an email from Andrew, and he wants to know, what is eternal subordination?
2: Eternal subordination. Oh, that's a new one. Uh, well, if you put the two words together, it says you're subordinate to somebody for eternity. And, of course, the only person we can be eternally subordinate to is God. So, so you're not
1: familiar with a movement no, of some sort? I don't have any No, is I, it, I've never heard of
2: it. I've not heard of it either. Uh, maybe if he's listening, he'll call in and explain it to Tom Price if Tom can figure out how to do this job he hasn't done in a long time.
1: Yeah, well, we're anxious to see. Um <laughs> Uh, Here our producer man has sent us a uh, little description. Eternal functional subordination or eternal subordination of the Son is a Trinitarian doctrine which proposes a hierarchy within the Trinity where the Son is ontologically equal to the Father. He is subordinate in role obeying the Father in eternity.
2: Well, that's not—I don't think that's a Catholic well, I, I, term.
1: I, well, I just didn't—I didn't—yeah, yeah, I, it, it, I, I'm familiar with it under its more common term, poppycock.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes people use terms. I don't know where they get them, maybe from some particular theology. The Church understands that the only distinction between the persons is the distinction of relation, that the, the, the father begets the son— and the Father and the Son together begets the Holy Spirit, or as they say in the East, the Father through the Son begets the Holy Spirit. And there are all kinds of analogies that are drawn there, are obviously the analogy of the Word for the uh, the, the begetting of the Son, the intellectual act of the Word, and the intellectual act of the Will. But I've never heard it referred to that. And so Christ himself makes clear in this degree of the question in this in relationship to this question that although he and the father are one that he came to do the father's will in other words the the, the active will of the father and the son is fulfilled in the holy spirit so together there is this order of the relations or as somebody uh, another way of putting it is the way that the divine persons process from the father the Father, the Son processes from the Father, the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Those are the only things in all other respects. So there is a, an order of the procession and there is a difference in the relation, but subordination would be a strong term because there will never be a disagreement between any of the divine persons. They will be always of one mind and one heart or one. One will, and so I think a word like subordination is a little bit strong for that. I think using Christ's words, "I came to do the will of the Father," is sufficient to say this perfect unity uh, of the of the of the Father, the Son with the Father, and the Church sees that present in other realities, in the reality of marriage. That although there is a, a natural order in marriage as well, there ought to be this communion of hearts and minds and wills in the marriage. And that ought to be that love ought to be the, the greater reality there. Or in the church, where the church has, especially since Vatican II, but always recognized the reality that that uh, although the pope is the successor of peter with the with uh, the authority that christ gave to peter nonetheless there is a collegial relationship among all of the bishops together with the pope and this is this is a communion uh, of love that should be directing the affairs of the church and so you can't separate the judicial order from the order of love or the order of communion in that situation human beings find that difficult to understand and so we have to maybe invent words like well the son is subordinate to the father or the wife is you know subordinate to the to the husband in some juridical sense certainly in the natural order that's true but the greater reality is the order of communion the order of love the order in which two wills or more than one wills in the case of the episcopal college collaborate and collectively together will the same truth the same reality and that's what the trinity does first of all and is the model of all other such cases
1: and apparently some evangelical scholars have argued that it's not ontologically subordinate but relationally subordinate
2: that would be a a way of avoiding perhaps the uh, catholic language but it sounds like it's the same thing
1: yeah for sure Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Justin writes in, why is it good to pray to the saints, and is there biblical evidence for it, and which saint is a good intercessor for moral purity? There's a bunch of them.
2: Yeah, there's a a lot of those. Well, the the evidence is the evidence which uh, occurred right during the public ministry of Christ. Uh, and that is his mother asked him to do something, and he did it uh, he he, in a sense, accepted her will he to use the language of the day, he, in a sense, was subordinate to his will her will because he he ordered his will in accordance with hers as an act of love, and he has the same act of love for all of of all of those he calls. You know into his presence and so the church understands that among all the saints who have gone to go with Christ they are they are sharing in the divine rule that in Christ's rule and we see that in the book of Revelation because what do we have we have the 24 elders sitting on the thrones and so in doing that it manifests this reality That Christ wills to bring the saints into participation, not only in the divine nature, such that we are adopted sons and daughters of God, but also that in the divine nature, they can participate in God's action toward the rest of the human race. That's the rule that is involved in that. Uh, the the rule in favor of the purposes for which the church was established the salvation of souls and on this basis the church uh, has always taught that one can ask the uh, those who are holy who have gone before us she identified the martyrs very early on and and um, the mass itself would be uh, offered um, in in celebration of those martyrs and this represents this recognition of the communion of the saints and the role that they now play in the economy of salvation that we are invited into that economy as much as we are invited simply into our you know sonship and daughtership of the father there is more to it than that i'm a, here i am a son and god a daughter of the father what now what do i do we have a lot to do because christ is still working to save the world and he involves his saints in that even as he involves his church on earth.
1: And with regard to particular saints with regard to purity, and chastity, I mean, the, you know, any of the virgin martyrs in the first eucharistic prayer would be a great place to That's start. That's right.
2: And certainly and certainly our uh, our lady is a, a great example of that. Uh, St. Joseph, and I think for many young men Aloysius Gonzaga is is often recommended, you know, to you're trying to get inculcate that into say altar boys. Uh, for example, to to learn the values of that. He would be a saint to to If you're looking for something
1: more contemporary, Maria Goretti.
2: Or Maria Goretti, exactly.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Our
1: old friend Raymond Arroyo brings his New Orleans-style jazz roots and well-honed dramatic talents to a heartwarming all-new classic Christmas album, Merry and Bright. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. That's EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288. Two eight eight three nine eight six. First up today is Jeff in Riverside, Illinois, listening on Roku today. Jeff, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Oh, hi, Colin. Hi, hi, Jack. I just wanted to thank you both for all that you do to help people learn more about their faith. Uh, I'm calling today because I'm hoping that uh, Colin can offer some practical advice for uh, parents and. Um, aunts and uncles and so forth about how to navigate mm-hmm. uh Christmas gatherings um given the recent document that was published. Uh, I'm I don't know, Jeff. Assuming,
1: Colin Colin was a boxer in the Navy. I don't know if he's the right person to ask this question to I was not Well then boxer. I <laughs> think he's I think he knows how to avoid getting into uh uh
3: getting avoid getting uh caught in a corner, so to yeah. speak. But I guess what I'm thinking is, you know, since Actions speak louder than words. Um, All kinds of young people that might be in same-sex relationships uh, have already watched a very obviously staged media event uh, featuring a priest in New York. And so I'm foreseeing that there's going to be uh, conversations that— and I'm in the Archdiocese of Chicago, so I know there's going to be blessings— Going on in this archdiocese, and I'm imagining young people are going to uh, tell their parents, uh, their aunts and uncles that we've arranged something, and there's mm-hmm, going to be brunch yeah. afterwards, and we want you to attend. Sure. So, yeah, I think, you know,
2: I, uh, the, uh, I think I got the I think I got the the gist of the question here. Um, well, first first of all, I think you have to start by what is the purpose of the church. Christ shows us. He gives us a lot of parables and lots of examples of this. And I don't think anyone will disagree that it's, it's to, to find all of the, to form a flock of the sheep, to bring back the lost sheep or those who have never been in the sheepfold, you know, and, and you could extend that image in a number of different ways. And so that means that the church is always going to be taking some risks in terms of, of doing that. Uh, in in a way, if you look at the history of the church and the different decisions and efforts that were made to extend uh, the faith to different groups of people, where there was some accommodation with different cultures, whether it was in China or even with my own uh, uh, Celtic ancestors in the British Isles and what was tolerated there for a time, there's always this effort to go after the lost sheep. And I think that is something that the Pope, really sees as as an important consideration so if the church is not to leave anybody out of the possibility of salvation then how are you to do that we have unfortunately in our culture and in our church a stance which has been developing over the course of 50 or 60 years it's wrapped up in the culture it's wrapped up in the sexual revolution it's wrapped up in the uh Uh, descent from Humanae Vitae and many other things, the purpose of which is to say that any kind of human flourishing which helps the person get closer to other human beings and closer to God is a positive thing, and that there are few any absolutely wrong things that that can be done. That represents one side of this, and in that respect, the blessings, in quotes, of, uh, of homosexual unions and relationships have been going on for 50 years. And that, that's simply a fact. Uh, the same individuals, the same ministries that were on the outs in other pontificates are now sort of on the in, you know, as part of this effort of leaving nobody out. In itself, that's a good thing. The trouble with the document is, and I think bishops' conferences are saying, and Cardinal Mueller has, has said it as well, is there are already blessings in the church that irrespective of the status of individuals can be given. A blessing, after all, is not, a, is not like the Nobel Peace Prize or an award for something or a diploma at the university which says, you've accomplished something. It's not, it's not a reward. What it is, it's an appeal to God for grace for individuals. Now, this obviously can be in groups of people as well. The Pope gives blessing to hundreds of thousands of people in the square, to millions over television. And so that's indiscriminate. The blessing at the end of Mass doesn't have regard for, uh, for the moral status of individuals either. So the purpose of blessing, that's not a problem. The problem is, I think has been identified by many bishops conferences and by Cardinal Mueller, is that this seems to be equivocal on the point of what it is you're blessing here. Are you blessing two people who come forward and ask for the church's blessing that they can grow in grace and grow closer to God? That would be fine. or are they coming and blessing of the union that they have that is, In some cases, irregular and possibly invalid in the case of of, uh, opposite-sex couples that have been in a marriage, or in the case of same-sex, quote, couples uh, that would be not just irregular but would be immoral uh, in its acts. How How does the church bless that? Well, it can't. And the document says that as well. But it's sort of equivocal, as the uh, as Cardinal Mueller states, on this use of the word couple, because it seems like to be of two minds. And I think this is where a lot of the division will come and where it's actually occurring on the parts of bishops and bishops' conferences. And that is a certain lack of clarity, sort of suggesting with one hand your blessing A homosexual relationship, on the other hand, saying rather explicitly that this is not your purpose. But how do you do that when you, as you put it so well, you have front paid pictures of priests blessing a couple holding hands? That says one thing. I don't think that's saying what the document intends, but that's saying one thing, which is being packed and jammed into what the document says. The the trouble I think with this particular document, as with the uh, motu proprio on on dealing with mar- uh, marriages where you don't have a clear path to a decree of nullity, is that you put at the at the the level of the every of, of every priest these judgments and decisions of very complex cases, and you make them responsible for deciding it one way or other. And so you're going to get priests who use this blessing to say, we're on the road to gay marriage. And you've got other priests who will use this blessing as a call to a deeper union with Christ, to a discovery of one's moral faults and an overcoming of moral faults, and appeal to God for grace to do that, and to move closer to Christ in all aspects of, of Christian life. And those are two different paths. Those are two different ways, as one notable organization has described itself, two ways. Well, the famous two ways are from the early church, where one is the way of light and the other is the way of darkness. One is the way of good and the other is the way of evil. And I think that's the difficulty to distinguish it. I think maybe family... This is the Christmas season. This is the season of the celebration of the motherhood of God, Our Lady on, on the first, uh, first day of the year. Don't fight about it. Say, look, th- this is the situation. There's probably going to be some conversation even among the bishops of the world and the pope and the Roman, uh, the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. So you're not going to settle it over the, over the turkey or the ham or whatever you have. Don't try to recognize that everybody's called to move closer to Christ regardless of their actual moral situation. And that's what the church is trying to do, I think. And some of these other questions arise because some are scandaled by this approach and others are saying, oh boy, let's run with this. We can make hay with it. Somewhere in the middle, I think there will be an ultimate conclusion and reconciliation of what the Pope is trying to accomplish and what bishops and others who have looked at this you know, can, can be pleased and happy with is consistent with what the Church has always taught on these matters. I think that's going to take some time.
1: Uh, Cole is in Kansas City listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Cole, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi,
4: Colin. I had a question about uh, the early, in regards to the early church. Mm-hmm. Um, if we, if we read in the New Testament, Paul going around and building churches, you know, with his own two hands, going around and um, and and these churches flourish. But when he's gone, whether it be for a year, or two, or three years he gets back, and these churches are a little bit, they've strayed, some of them Mm -hmm. have strayed, some of them have gone into some confusion. How can we look at what the early church documents say and confidently know that if St. Paul were around, he wouldn't be saying, that's not what, you know, I was saying or the the Mm -hmm. other apostles were saying. How can we trust, like, early church documents if two years after Paul's done with one church Gets back, it's not really what it was. How can we trust really church?
2: You know what I'm well, saying? Well, you're you're t- two different things. You're talking about on one hand what uh the 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 doctrine and the practice of the church is and is intended to be. On the other hand, the propensity for human beings not to live up to those things, even right after an apostle has left them. So Paul writes to Corinth. Pope Clement writes to Corinth. Probably a lot of letters by different people have been written to Corinth over the years to make it straighten you know straighten up its act this is this is the recognition that the church is not made up of, of saints but is made up of sinners on their way to being saints and so there's always a struggle with regard to the teaching Saint Irenaeus in the middle of the second and late part of the second century gives us the basic rule which is certainly the one that has been consistently, observed in the early church and that is you look to what has been taught always taught in every place and by the basis of what all consistently teach you know that that is from the apostles now sacred scripture only came along a couple hundred years after that so the the church got along on the teaching of the apostles and on those books of sacred scripture that were extant and in, sac- in, in circulation uh, during those early centuries until the church also had the written divine revelation to add to the apostolic tradition she al- al- already possessed. And so you look to those apostolic sees, and you see what were they teaching and you find they were in agreement.
1: 833 3986 It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN Radio family, Eucharist Radio in Morganfield, Kentucky, celebrating 14 years with us. Congratulations to Dickie Nally, who was the driving force behind that effort, and everybody who helped him at WEUC Radio from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is John in Peoria, Illinois. John, you're on with Colin Donovan.
2: Hello, Colin. Yes, John. Go ahead.
1: Go right ahead, John. Hello? Yeah, go ahead, John. What's your question today? My
5: question is:
4: Has there ever been any um, saints that are no longer considered saints?
2: There are saints that you could say are decalendered, um, and uh, you could look at some that after Vatican II they looked at the church calendar and they were looking, f- they were looking for places for the many saints of the twentieth century that we've had. You've looked at the martyrs of the twentieth century and. You know, obviously, we have even other saints been added since the council. And in the reform of the calendar, they removed from the calendar a number of saints where they had long had sort of a legendary status in the church, but for which there was very little historical evidence. So you look at the martyrs, uh, even many of the early church martyrs in the Middle East, and they're Many of them are simply names in a catalog of people who were put to death for, for the faith. But some saints, and notably St. Christopher, who is often shown holding the child Jesus based on the, the story of him carrying him uh, across a, a stream, uh, there wasn't a great deal of historical reference or evidence for him. So he wasn't so much de-sainted, if you will, but he was removed from the general calendar uh, on the basis that it should be reserved, A, for those for whom we have solid uh, evidence from the early centuries, and B, to create the room for saints which are of more general devotion. Uh, and so the calendars take accounts of particular nations and what their, what their saints are. So some American saints will be on our calendar and no other nation's calendar. Um, religious orders and religious orders have their own calendars as well. So, you know, uh, if you've ever seen the Franciscan order or ordo, uh, which our friars use, it's loaded up with Franciscan saints, some of whom get. I think ma-
1: that's how Father Mark hurt his back was lifting that volume.
2: He probably was, you <laughs> know, <laughs> but uh, very often they celebrate masses. So it's not like, as I said, it's not. There was a, another one who was a favorite of. Uh, uh, the Curie of Ours, I forget her name. It was a, it was a, a woman saint that had uh, appeared to someone in the 1800s, I believe. That name eludes me. But uh, she was one of those for, there was very little uh, historical evidence for, so she was decalendered. But I think, uh, for instance, you go to any rel- religious goods store, you can probably still find a St. Christopher medal. Uh that's uh, some evidence, at least, that people still have a devotion to him, um, even though uh, there's very little historical evidence for him. And after all, if you talk to worldly, secular people who <coughs> have no time for Christian belief, they'll tell you, well, Christ is a fable. So anyway, we're we're very good at believing truths which others consider fabulous.
1: 833 ewtn A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833 833- Jim is in Uvalde, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Jim, you're on with Colin Donovan.
6: Yeah, hey, Colin. Uh, I got a question for a friend of our family. Um, She wants to come back to the church. She was was Catholic, and she was married in the church the first time. Mm Mm-hmm. Her husband was abusive to her so they ended up getting a divorce many years ago. She had remarried and she didn't remarry in the church. And uh she wants to return to the church mm-hmm. but she has people telling her that there's no way that she could ever fully return to the church and you know and, and enjoy the sacraments um uh, mm-hmm. because of her situation and she wants to know she's distraught about this and she wants to know is this reversible
2: well not reversible but the first thing to do is stop listening to people who don't know what they're talking about uh, it's
1: poppycock Friday on open apparently
2: line. apparently so she should take her case to uh to the office of the bishop to the diocesan headquarters at chancery and she should have it looked at the reason i say that is marriage can be valid if in entering the marriage the couples have the intention to satisfy the ends for which marriage is uh instituted by god And that is for the lifelong union of the couple and for the procreation of children, taking for granted that nature sometimes has other ideas, including being an older person when you get married, setting aside all of those secondary type things. So the very fact that she had an abusive marriage, I would think would be the starting point. Did this man intend the ends of marriage? But that would require investigation on the part of the marriage tribunal. Uh, that would require probably taking uh, witness uh, testimonies and so on. But there will be cases where that leads to uh, to a, a decree of nullity that the that the marriage was not valid. And that means that she is free. she's free. Uh, of course, if he dies, she's free for that reason as well that. Uh, marriage ends at death so if the other spouse dies um, if he were to die she would also be free to marry so I think that's she has to go with the with the, the facts of the case and speak to somebody who works on the marriage tribunal who can uh, guide her more clearly than I can I'm not a canonist so I have some knowledge but not that extent of knowledge and also having seen this before dioceses, know the possibilities and probabilities that uh, that it would work out with, uh, with the Declaration of Nullity. But there's also the risk that it would not work out. And so you go in, you know, open-minded yourself to see how the church evaluates it and then uh, accepting the conclusion of the church. That makes it would be difficult if it didn't permit, uh, if it didn't issue a decree of nullity for that first marriage, but one can return to the church and live chastely with the person that you're with. Uh, that would be easier, easier probably for older couples than for younger ones, um, but though that is also a way in which you can return to the sacraments uh, as well. And that all of that should be discussed with whoever is given to you to uh, to speak to you about the, your her particular case.
1: God bless you, Jim. We'll keep you in our prayers and your friend as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Give us a call. Art is in Covington, Kentucky, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Art, you're on with Kyle Donovan.
5: Well, yes, thank you. Thank you guys for being on the radio and uh, I wish you all a a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Mm -hmm. Uh, My question has to do with uh, the Bible and and, uh, back around 300 where Constantine called, I think, the Council of Nicene. And they put the Bible together. And uh, I guess the question comes up is how they choose the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over uh, what I think there's probably uh, 14 or 13 Different gospels floating around, like uh, mm-hmm. the Gospel of uh, James, where Jesus sure. uh, makes mud pies, makes blackbirds out of mud pies, mm-hmm. and throws someone off a roof. And the village comes and they ask him why he did that, and he said, and he brought the person back to life. I can understand why the uh, uh, church didn't accept that as a as a, a same gospel, but uh, I, about eight, about forty years ago. I spent about five hours searching in the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library, and I found a book by a, written by a priest. Now I don't know; I forgot the look. I guess whether it was authorized by a bishop there, which uh, happened. But uh, this priest said that the way they chose the gospels was that uh, they got they chose the gospels that had the passion of Christ in it. And that's how they chose the four Gospels. And I just was wondering, if you looked at the other Gospels that they didn't choose, was there, was there a passion in yeah. the uh, other Gospels?
2: No, those that was—I I hate to disagree with this, uh, quote, priest, unquote, uh, whoever he was. Uh, that's not at all, all the way things went. First of all, well before Constantine, there was a general agreement among— catholic bishops of the world and recalling that that only kind of bishops there were east and west were those who were in communion with each other and recognized the bishop of rome as the the uh, the head of the apostolic college so sadly the church has broken into the east and the west the orthodox and and catholic church uh, in 1054 but until then there was that unity east and west so In keeping with an earlier answer I gave about where I spoke of the formation of the Bible, already in the second century and into the third century, there were general lists where it was agreed these represented the apostolic tradition. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had some apostolic authority, the names suggest what it is, although the church doesn't, uh, it doesn't necessarily affirm the names. It affirms the content as being faithful uh, to belief. Matthew, of course, an apostle. Mark, a disciple. Uh, Luke, also a disciple who accompanied St. Paul. And John, of course, an apostle. And the Church attributes apostolic authority to that write, these writings that were already in circulation in the 2nd century. Uh, we know that for a fact because they're referred to. One of the apologists uh, for the early Church, Justin Martyr, in the middle of the 2nd sec- century, about 160, he wrote a letter to uh, the emperor in defense of the Christian faith, and he, he this happened to be a philosophical answer, uh, Antoninus Pius, who was very tolerant of Christians and different ideas, and so he wrote to the emperor an explanation of what goes on in the mass, and he disguised the he he said how the 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 the, the leader presider they would they would read the memoirs of the apostles, gospels. I think we would say today. Somebody would give a talk, the presider would give a talk and would say the Eucharistic prayer according to his capacity, and then they would consume the body and blood of the Lord. Describes the Mass perfectly according to that day. So already here in the middle of the second century, there are there are references to the Gospels, the memoirs of the Apostles, those things attributed by the Church generally in the Mediterranean Basin which with the exception of uh, Persia and uh, the south of India is probably all th- to the extent of the church in those days, and giving it clear that these documents were accepted very widely. The Old Covenant uh, documents, what we call the Old Testament, were already recognized because the Jews had assembled in the Septuagint edition or the Septuagint books of the Uh, of the synagogue in Alexandria, a Greek version of the Old Testament, which became used by the apostles in uh, in evangelization. So we had this Greek uh, version of the Old Covenant from the Alexandrian Jews. We had the writings of the apostles, the letters of St. Paul. There were writings also of popes, such as the writings of Clement, and what they did, ended up doing, is no, they wanted those which represented the original apostolic tradition, not the second generation, not the third generation. So the letter of Clement, which is beautiful, uh, addressing the problems in uh, Corinth, which, gentlemen, before you asked about uh, that, those, those things got selected out. And included of those which had sort of an influence of the Gnostic movement of the second and third century, like the Gospel of St. James, those got selected out as well, also for the fabulous claims there. Christ never did miracles for performance. He did miracles to attest to his the truth of his work, the work the Father sent him to accomplish. So on that basis, the Church herself selected these books. And the first official list, although it was generally already the recognized list beginning in the, in the 200s, came not from Constantine, who had nothing at all to do with it. It came from the Bishop of Rome, who in 380 <laughs> held a synod. And among the things they discussed is they wanted to set out a list of these things. And we happen to know this because a bishop in France wrote to the Pope and said, what are the books accepted at Rome? And they are the same books that are in the Bible of St. Jerome from the 400s, the Vulgate. And they're the same list that were in uh, recognized by the Council of Trent, by Vatican II, by the Catechism of the Catholic Church today. So there is a clear line of, of history here showing the the choice of the books based on the apostolic authority for the New Testament and the authority of 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 Israel as passed on through the Septuagint. That was accepted. But the church made the decision. The Jews did not actually have a canon. So the first canon of the Old Covenant was essentially the fact that the church chose the Septuagint Bible, and it actually, or Septuagint uh, translation, they actually ended up not using all of the books. So there was a choice there, and that to that extent. And then the books which which became general in the Mediterranean Basin and used all over the Basin by the churches in the different places. And this is this is the corpus of the Bible that we know today uh, and which then Luther and others modified. Uh, King James and his Bible modified uh, when they print, print, printed it by throwing out some of those which the early church had held as being a divine revelation of the Old Covenant.
1: It's an EWTN radio tradition, the 48 Hours of Christmas. Join us all day Christmas Eve and Christmas Day for special programs music from around the world and much more. Some highlights this year include Midnight Mass from the Holy Land, uh, Live from St. Catherine's Church in Bethlehem, Superman and Christmas. It's a classic from Archbishop Fulton Sheen and much, much more. The 48 Hours of Christmas starting Christmas Eve morning only on EWTN radio. Next up is D in Colleen, Texas, listening on Armor of God Radio. D, you are on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hi there. I was wondering if you could quotation of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. number one seven seven
4: six.
2: Sure. Um, well, here let me let me read it for the benefit of our listeners. Deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. Its voice, ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. This reference is to what the the church has called for, I don't know if it's as long as a millennia, but certainly the principle has been recognized from early on, what's called the natural law. And that is what God gave to us human beings, two, two spiritual faculties which he possesses and which the angels possess, intellect to reason and will to do, to love. And love, of course, is the, is the, the great law of, of doing. So these two things. So reason gives man the ability to look at the natures of things and on the basis of, of how something is ordered by God to determine how he ought to behave with respect to it. We have one difficulty. The first two human beings made a mess of it. So our reason has been darkened and our will has been weakened, darkened in knowing the truth, and weakened in doing acts of love. So this is our great difficulty. But the church is here in seventeen seventy in Catechism 1776 is speaking of this law written in the heart of man, essentially written on the intellect of man, that if we if we use our minds rightly, we can see what the truth is in particular situations. So the natural law regarding marriage is, for example, the thing which the darkness of consciences today are rejecting. Uh, That marriage is clearly the complementarity of man and woman. That's a created reality created by God with Christians accept and others dispute. And in that created reality, that complementarity is for the purpose of children uh, and therefore, on that basis, things which are which which harm that that purpose for which God created man and woman and marriage are sinful and wrong. And if people think about this long enough, they discover it's true. And I've told I've I've told this uh, st- was told this story actually by a friend uh, several well it's got to be forty years ago now. Uh, he and his wife were Catholics, but they, and they were otherwise very faithful, practicing Catholics. But they had this little trouble with a document called On Human Life, (Humane Vitae, which told them they couldn't use the pill and they couldn't use other means of contraception. And they figured, oh, the Dickens, why do we want to bother? You know, it's such a little thing. Now, their conscience was telling them I should listen to the church but they didn't listen to the church. But they found themselves distancing from each other, their fervor for each other cooling, and they were seeing the disastrous effects in their marriage as a result of this. And I remember him coming to me and say, Colin, we learned this the hard way. I wish that all couples could, could just listen to the church and not, not learn it with difficulty. And that's the trouble with human life is we can reflect on these things and see the purposes God instilled in his creation and then we can obey them or we can just blow them off and say well you know God really didn't think of my particular circumstances I'm a special person I you know you know I can do this or I can do that I can't find a woman to love so I'll find a man to love whatever it is we'll just you know we'll just do what we want but when you look in the conscience and you listen to the voice of God who wants to speak to you there, which means you're praying and you're asking him, give me the grace, show me how, give me the matter, the means to 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 do what you ask me to do. When you do those things, God will be there to help you. And I wish fiducia, <laughs> whatever whatever it's called, supplicants would say something like that, that in it, because that's what God wants to say in conscience. not... You're doing fine, little Tommy, and uh, you just keep on doing what you're doing because that's what you want to do. No, we listen for God. We look for the truth. And the natural law is one way of knowing the truth, looking at the purposes of things as God intended them by creating them. And then there's the divine law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments and all the conclusions we can draw about what we ought to do based on them. And then there is the perfect law, the law of love, by which all of these things can be reconciled in a right way. And I hope to God that fiducia supplicants will be reconciled in love, but with the truth and the realities that underlie real love and not false love.
1: Jack is watching us on YouTube and he says I was baptized and confirmed how can I get unbaptized or deconfirmed? and also why should I trust the Bible
2: well I'm not going to answer that first question if you really want to go do that find somebody else to give you the answer and you should trust the Bible because millions have done done so they have built the great cathedral and written the most beautiful music mankind has ever seen uh, and they do that while building hospitals and orphanages and that's what that's what the Bible has led them to do. That's what they've been led to do by their faith, and that witness to the truth of Scripture and the truth of Christ uh, is the testament uh, uh, to to that reality. As for the other, go figure it out yourself.
1: <laughs> I think uh, I think he's going to be a little disappointed. There is this whole uh, indelible mark hurdle to clear.
2: Well. That's right and many a uh, writer has said that even in hell that will be there and to make it worse woe, for you woe to you if it is it'll make it worse for you to whom much is given much will be expected and when they don't when they don't return it well anyway enough on that subject <laughs>
1: On behalf of our host, Mr. Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, our celebrity call screener, Mr. Tom Price this hour, and Jeff Burson, our magnificent social media maven, I'm Jack Williams wishing all of you a very, very Merry Christmas. I uh, hope you enjoy the last uh, what, 46 hours, 48 hours of uh, Advent here and into Not the Christmas plan. season. <laughs> We'll be back at it again next week until we get together then. God bless. Check out the 48 hours of Christmas, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Some great stuff right here on EWTN Radio.